Would you please remain standing out of respect for God's word as I read today our sermon text, Acts 2, verses 14 to 41. This is the inspired word of God. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, 
Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. They were added that day about 3,000 souls. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. And as you are, would you pray with me? Our Lord, we need your spirit. We need your spirit to give new life to dead hearts. We need your spirit to open eyes that are blind. We need your spirit so that we might understand your word. We need your spirit to move in our midst today. And so we ask, Lord, that you would move in our midst by the power of your spirit. Help us to see you more clearly through your word, to worship you and to honor you during this time, and to do it all to the glory of your holy name. For it is in that name that we ask it, the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, we've been doing a sermon series through the ordinary means of grace, but because of kind of how the church calendar falls, with today being Pentecost, we're kind of taking a little detour away from it to touch on Acts 2. As it turns out, though, I think that, that this passage actually uh, will help set us up for next Sunday's sermon on baptism in many ways. So in the providence of God, I guess it, it actually kind of is part of our series on the ordinary means of grace. You might wonder what Pentecost is. There's, there's a little blurb in our bulletin talking about uh, what Pentecost is under the feature element of worship. Basically, uh, what Pentecost is, is it was an Old Testament feast that was held by the people of God. It was, uh, the, it was also called the Feast of Weeks. It uh, celebrated the, the first grain harvest in Palestine, and it was celebrated seven weeks after the Sabbath of the Passover. And so uh, it was on that Sabbath, the 50th day from that Sabbath, and that's where the name Pentecost comes from. You might recognize pent, as in we have the word pentagon, for instance, for five. That's where the, the meaning of the word comes from, and it was an Old Testament feast that existed, but it took on some new meaning in the New Testament, didn't it, in Acts 2, when God poured out his Holy Spirit upon his people, as we read in the Eunice Scripture reading just a moment ago, and as Peter fully further talks about in our sermon text today. It made sense to go to that text today with it being Pentecost. After all, what I read in our sermon text, verses 14 to 41, are, are commonly known as, as Peter's sermon on Pentecost. And well, I figured my name is Peter and I'm preaching a sermon and it is Pentecost. It only makes sense to go there, right? So we, we look to this sermon of Peter's, which many call the, the first Christian sermon to be preached, or at least in our Bible. And you might be saying, well, well wait a second. If, if that was Peter's sermon on Pentecost, why are we still going on? Why are we saying more about it? Well, wasn't it enough that we said the things that he said and, and, and we could just be done with it and we can move on and get to lunch quicker? 
Well, the thing is, that's not all Peter said on Pentecost. It says so right there in verse 40. You might have caught it. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So he, he, he said many other things. What Luke gives us here in Acts 2 is kind of a summation of the things that he said. It's a, a summary and an overview of, of the details of what Peter preached on that day. And in his sermon, we see that he touched on a number of different points. What I want to look at today as we look at it is is what he said in his sermon and what it has to say about the Bible, first of all. Secondly, what, what it has to say about Jesus. And then finally, what it has to say about us. First of all, what it has to say about the Bible. Now, I I'm sure most of you know that the Bible is divided up into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's composed of 66 books of varying genres written by numerous authors over a span of 1,500 or so years. Uh, But even though that is the case, there is an essential concord amongst the whole of the Bible. There's a, a living unity that exists within the word of God. Kind of like how, how our bodies work together toward a singular purpose, right? You think like, like your hand is created to do one thing and your nose and your eyes and your ears each have individual purposes, your feet, your, your heart, your brain, all these different body parts have different purposes. They're they, they, they oftentimes work independent of one another, but, but in the big picture, they all work toward a similar goal. For instance, if you're walking along and you, you trip, and for me that's very familiar because just the other day I tripped right here and fell down uh, at this very spot, so I'm being very careful right now. But, but what happens when you trip, right, there's, there's some little crystals in your inner ear, right, that are floating around and... and and they will get jostled around and, and, and there'll be a message that will be sent to your brain that says, uh-oh, we're off balance. We need to do something, right? So, so the brain then will send messages out to your body and, and, and as you're falling this way, your foot will actually, you, know, you won't even think about it, you'll just instinctively move your foot in that direction to try to shift your center of balance so that it's, it's above your base, your foot, right? And, and you might even, with your arms, do it, right? You're, you're, and you'll throw your arm out to the side, not even thinking. It's not like you actually sat and, well, let me do the calculations. Where does my body need to be? No, right? We wouldn't be able to do that. At least most of us wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, but, but our body has all these varying parts working toward the singular goal at that point of remaining upright, right? The Word of God is kind of like that. It, it, it all works toward a singular goal in all of its varying parts. Its unity of purpose is to tell of God's glory as is made known to us through his great works of redemption. All of scripture revolves around this storyline. It either sets the foundation for it, it tells its story, or it, it gives the outplaying of it, the outworking of it, and how it works out in our lives. And the Bible can do this because even though it's written by all these various people, there is one divine author that stands behind them. It is, of course, the Spirit of God. 
right? 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God. Much the same as Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, the, the Bible, the word of God, is spirit-directed. And beyond that, it speaks to an unchanging plan of redemption. Right, we see that in the prophecies that are fulfilled. Right, remember last week we talked about John the Baptist? And we, we made the point that John the Baptist said in Luke 3 and Matthew 3, I baptize with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This idea of baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire, that's what we see here in Acts 2 in Pentecost. It is a fulfillment of that which John the Baptist had said. And Jesus himself in John 16 says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you again. A fulfillment of this promise of Jesus that if he goes away, he will send the Holy Spirit as a helper. Most pointedly though, I guess we see the, the prophecy of Joel chapter two, verses 28 to 32 here. That's what Peter is writing about. If, if Peter were to have a sermon text here, we could say that was his text for his sermon. And he says to the people who are there, Give ear to my words, listen to what I have to say. Remember, the people were saying, what, what's going on with these guys? This is weird, they must be drunk. And Peter says to them, these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m. They are not drunk, but this that's going on here is what is uttered by Joel in chapter two, of his book in the Old Testament. And then he goes on to quote Joel. And he says, in the last days. And we need to understand that, that when you say the last days, it, it might conjure up all kinds of thoughts in our minds. Somebody might ask you, well, do you think we're, we're living in the last days? Look at all these things going on. Well, well we need to understand the Jewish thinking was, was split up into, into two parts, time was. There was this present age, right, where the world is broken and fallen and things don't happen the way that they should, and there is the age to come where God sets all things right and all things exist in his perfect shalom and holiness and peace. And there are these two ages. And, and what Peter is saying here is that with the life and death and burial and resurrection and ascension of Christ Jesus the Lord, the age to come has been inaugurated. It, it has actually begun. It is not fully here, it has not been fully realized yet, but, but God has broken into time and space and has begun that age to come. And so the, the entire time between Christ's first coming which happened 2,000 years ago, and Christ's 
second coming, which we don't know when that is, however long that time frame is, that is the last days. So if somebody asks you, do you think we're in the last days? Absolutely, we're definitely in the last days. We have been for about 2,000 years now, okay? That's the answer to that. So Peter's talking about these last days. He says, in those days, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. What a beautiful promise that is, right? Because though there is an unchanging truth, an unchanging plan, God has deemed it appropriate to expand the way he reveals it, right? He is, he is expanding things. This trajectory of grace is an ever-broadening view of how he reveals himself. And so he's not just going to pour out his spirit upon his people, right? On, on a few priests who are serving this very small group of people. Rather, he says he will pour out his spirit on all flesh, not just Jews, not just males, not just free people appointed to a certain job, all people, I will pour out my spirit. It, it, it corresponds with what Paul writes about in Galatians 3 when he talks about sonship and how we receive the spirit of adoption to become sons of God. He says, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so we see here God saying he's going to pour out all his spirit on all flesh in these last days. And your sons and daughters will prophesy, young men will see visions, your old men will as well. He says it will pour it out on his male servants, his female servants, right? And Peter explains that, that what was going on on that day, 2,000 years ago on Pentecost, was, was what Joel had spoken about, what he had said was to come. And, and, and Peter goes on to speak of further signs that will occur before the, the coming of the day of the Lord. And he says this beautiful truth in verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is a wonderful promise, brothers and sisters. It is a wonderful promise. It does not matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, what your background is, how sinful you've been, what terrible things you've done. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What a beautiful promise. The graciousness of God shown to us that in Christ Jesus, no matter how much we've sinned, we cannot outsin the grace of God. For his grace is greater still than all of our sin. And so if you sit there today doubting whether you can be loved by God, doubting whether you can be reconciled to God, doubting whether you can be right before God, I tell you, you can, for he has promised everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's 
always been the promise, actually. It's been the plan from the beginning, dating all the way back to Genesis, right? Remember Genesis 11, what happened to Tower of Babel? There, there were these people there and they gathered together and they wanted to, they said, build this tower that was going to reach into the heavens. Why? So that they could make a name for themselves. We like to do that, don't we? We like to make a name for ourselves. We like to remind ourselves, we like to remind others how important we are, right? I, I'm big stuff, you know, because, you know, we'll fill in the blank, right? Well, that's a tale as old as time. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to, to replace God. They didn't want to depend upon God. They wanted to become gods unto themselves. God, of course, was having none of it. What did he do? He, he confused their languages and scattered them into different places. And so we have people in different places speaking different languages. And then what's the very next thing we read? That was Genesis 11, Genesis 12 at the beginning of that chapter tells us how God called Abram. And when he called him, he said to him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will, I will, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. See, the, the idea was that he was going to make his name great. It was God who was gonna do it. But, but notice how he doesn't say, I will make your name great so that you can be awesome. So that everybody can think you're the greatest. So that you have, no, it's so that you will be a blessing to others. Right, that's the whole point. So, so he says to him that, that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That was the, the idea from the beginning. And so, so we come now to 2,000 years later and we see this, this Jesus bursts onto the scene. He, he lives a holy life. He dies a sacrificial death. He rises from the dead and before he goes to be with his father, he says to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, right? Of all nations, the very nations that, that Abram was to be a blessing to. He, he says in Acts 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, that's the plan that, that the people of God would be blessed by God. He would pour out his spirit upon them that they might have power, that he would pour out his grace upon them that they might be blessed. But he would do this that they might be a blessing to others that they would have an outward face, not, not an inward face. And this was all coming to fruition on, on Pentecost, right? We're seeing how, how there were people from all over the world that were there and they were coming together and, and they were able to hear the gospel of Christ Jesus and his great works on our behalf. This Jesus who had been delivered up, we read in verse 23, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Right, it wasn't a plan B, it wasn't something that 
God had been dealing with things. He took a nap, woke up. Oh my goodness, what happened when I was sleeping? No, it was his plan from the beginning. Right? He knew that this was going to happen. He had directed things. His foreknowledge isn't just that he had kind of read the last chapter before he got there. It was actually his plan. He's the author. He's the one who, who wrote it, the one who designed it to be that way. And this whole plan centered on Jesus from the very beginning. Right? That Jesus who's, who's talked about here by David. Right? Peter makes reference of it in 25. He says, David says concerning him. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 16, and he talks about how David spoke of being with the Lord, right, and said how, how you will not abandon my soul to Hades, to the place of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see corruption, right? But, but, but Peter points out then, following after that in verse 29 and following that, that but wait, if, if you look at David, we know that he did die. He did go to the place of the dead. In fact, his, his grave's right over there. What was it that he was talking about when he said that? Well, Peter says that being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Right? That Christ was the one he had raised up. Christ was the one he had exalted. Christ was the one that David was writing about in the Psalms. Just the same as in Psalm 110, which Peter quotes here in verse 34, where he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. David wrote in the Psalms about Jesus, just like all the scriptures point to Jesus, and just like this message speaks about Jesus. Well, what does it say? What does it say about Jesus? Second point. Well, it says that he's the one around whom history revolves, right? We know this, right? How is time divided? Right? It's before Christ, B.C. or A.D., Anno Domini, year of our Lord. Now, now you might see these days, scholastics and smart people are changing it. You know, no longer is it B.C., A.D. They'll say B.C.E. and B.C., or C.E., B.C.E. and C.E., right? Common era and before common era. Right? They, they don't want to use the name of Christ in there. They want to secularize it, which is kind of silly because what is the dividing point? Well, Christ, right? He's still the dividing point, even if you don't say his name. He's the one around whom history revolves. And he's the dividing point also between the world as it was and the world as it will one day be. And he is not just the one around whom history revolves. He is also the, the one who has all power. That's spoken of in this passage here. His mighty works and wonders and signs in verse 22 are talked of, right? The many things that he did in his life, the miracles and the signs, they weren't just magic tricks. They were pointing to who he was and who he is. They spoke to his identity. And now this identity and this power are attested to by the Holy Spirit's on rushing onto the people of God here in this place, the miraculous working at that first Pentecost, but perhaps nowhere is the power of Christ Jesus seen more clearly and evidently and robustly and fully than in the resurrection, right? For, for Christ Jesus who was crucified, this Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He was dead 
He was buried. There was no more life left in him. It was done. The end. Story over. Except it wasn't, right? Because Jesus rose again. God raised him up, verse 24. He raised him up. His resurrection attested to his power. I love how it's said by Luke in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. He said, he presented himself alive after suffering by many proofs. As if there's a lot of proofs necessary. Hi, I'm alive, right? Well, prove it. Well, I'm alive, right? I mean, that, it's kind of self-evident at that point. But it says, by many proofs, he showed himself to be alive. He appeared to many people. Peter talks about it himself in verse 32. This God raised up, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Remember that this was not some far off, long ago legend that Peter was talking about at the time. This is not some, some old fable or some old tale. It's something that had happened seven weeks earlier. Right? And there were other people there, not just him, who had seen Jesus. They were eyewitnesses to his resurrection. They could, they could authenticate the fact that it had happened and the resurrection itself authenticated Jesus' claims. It vindicated his authority. He has power over death and God raised him up and loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Realize that this great passage of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 actually isn't really about the Holy Spirit at all, is it? It's about Jesus, right? Because the Holy Spirit doesn't come to bring glory to himself. He comes to proclaim Christ. And so it is that this passage speaks to Jesus who is Lord. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Lord, a loaded word if ever there was. Right, because the Jews of that day daily proclaimed the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was the, the basic proclamation of faith. Right, and they wouldn't say the name Yahweh that was actually there. They replaced it with that word Lord. That word which translated into Greek is kurios, that word that's used here, Lord. It, it was used to be the name of God, the very name, and that's why in Philippians 2, Paul says God highly exalted in him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, right? That name, Lord. So let all the house of Israel therefore know that for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What does it say about the word of God? What does it say about Jesus? What does it say about us? It says you crucified him. You were sinners. Right? Verse 23 refers to lawless men. Verse 40 refers to a crooked generation. Right? We share in Adam's sin. Before we do anything, we're born into sin, but we all too readily and all too gleefully not just are born into it, we run headlong into it, don't we? Day after day after day, we pursue sin. We fail to live the holy lives God has called us to. And we partook in the very crucifixion of Jesus because it is our sin that placed him on that cross. Right, it, it was indeed God's plan but that does not remove human responsibility. 
for, for our sin is what, what did it. They, they no doubt thought they were good, God-fearing people as they heard Peter preach to them on that day. And as you sit here in this pew, I have no doubt that you think of yourself as good, God-fearing people. But on that day, they needed to know that they had crucified the Son of God. And on this day, you need to know that you crucified the Son of God. One of my favorite paintings is that of Rembrandt. It's called The Raising of the Cross. And in it, there's a picture of, you can imagine, Jesus on the cross being raised up. And there are a number of people who are involved in the raising of the cross, the soldiers and the people around it. But it's all kind of dark and hazy. Rembrandt often used shadows and light in this way. But there's one person amongst all the people that are raising the cross up that you can see, that you can make out, because, because he's shining brightly in the light and he's very out of place. He's wearing a beret, actually, <laughs> which you're like, what? I didn't know they wore berets in the ancient Near East. No, they didn't, of course. That the person with the beret is Rembrandt, of course. He's painted himself into the picture. So as they are raising the cross, he is there at the foot of the cross, raising it with them. He is a part of the story. He rightly understands that, that he crucified Jesus. It's the same idea that Stuart Townend communicates in his modern hymn that we've sung before here, how deep the Father's love for us. He says, behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Right, that's, that's a dreadful thought, isn't it? It's a dreadful thought. You killed Jesus. You killed Jesus. It's a horrible thought. But there is good news that follows right behind it. Good news that's so wonderful. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. But his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. He has brought life through his death. That was his plan all along. And so what's left for us, what must we do? We come just as those people did today and say, brothers, what must we do? Heed the words of Peter there. Repent. Repent. The idea behind repent is to think differently, change our mind, change our mind about God, change our mind about ourselves, change our mind about how we live our life, change our mind so that God and his glory and Christ Jesus, his son, are at the center of all we say and think and do. Change our mind and repent. Consider the change that took place in Peter. He who, back when Jesus was crucified seven weeks earlier, 
was, was too fearful to even, even admit his identity to a little servant girl. And now he is boldly proclaiming in front of thousands of people that this Jesus who you crucified is Lord and God has raised him and you need to repent today. Repent today, believe in Christ Jesus and be baptized in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit to empower you. The Holy Spirit to bring you into faith. The Holy Spirit to guide you and direct you, to comfort you, to strengthen you. The Holy Spirit that we need to live life by. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. We'll get to that next week when we talk about baptism, but he says finally in verse 40, save yourself from this crooked generation. Clearly, he doesn't mean that we're able to save ourselves, right? It is God who saves us, but we must trust in him. We must take that step. We must repent. We must look to him. We must cry out to him. If you haven't trusted in Christ Jesus, save yourself from this crooked generation. Trust in him today, repent of your sin, believe in him for salvation, and be saved. If you have already, then continue to trust in him. It's not just a one-time thing, it's not just I trusted in him once and now I'm done with it and I find, no, it's an ongoing thing. Day after day after day after day, trust in him, be led by the Holy Spirit, and walk in faith. You see, on that day, there were added to their number some 3,000 souls. Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, wouldn't that be awesome if one Sunday we showed up and we had 75 people here, and the next Sunday we showed up and we had 3,075, right? Parking might be a problem, but, you know, I mean, it would still be a pretty good thing. How did that happen? It happened because the Spirit moved, right? So we should be praying that God would bring about revival in our midst in the same way. Not because, because we realize that salvation comes not by our clever arguments. It doesn't come by our, our innovative ministry programs. It doesn't come by anything that we do, but ultimately comes through the power of God's Holy Spirit working in our midst. So we need to be praying. Pray for family members and neighbors and, and friends and coworkers and Pray for government authorities and for people even who you consider to be your enemies and pray for people all around the world. Let us pray that they might come to know Christ Jesus as Lord. That we might see revival in our midst here and around the world. That, that they might come to know salvation and they might come to know forgiveness and they might come to know the joy that we know of Christ Jesus as our Lord. As we worship him who has that name which is above every name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray that the Spirit of God would be so poured out among us that we might see it in our midst. And let us pray even now. Our Lord, we ask that this would indeed be the case. Pour out your Spirit in abundance in great measure, your word tells us that you are able to accomplish more than we can ask or even imagine. We ask that you would do that now, Lord. 
We ask that you would bring about revival, not so we can feel good about ourselves, but so you might be glorified. We ask that you would do this. We ask that others would come to salvation so that they would know the joy we know. We pray that our joy might be made greater through this. Breathe out your spirit. Pour out your spirit. Work through your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you rise now, if you are able, as we sing hymn number 397, Breathe on me, breath of God.